0: Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, we come before you this morning and ask on behalf of our brother and sister TJ and Karen Smith and their and their two girls for your spirit to make clear to them where the next place of ministry will be. Father, thank you for their long and faithful service in India. Thank you for the the way that you have worked through them to strengthen the church there. Thank you for TJ's time in these last couple of weeks meeting with these pastors and and Father, in the face of great adversity, may you strengthen these men that they would be firmly rooted in the Word of God. And our Father, now as we open the Scriptures together this morning, we pray for Your Spirit to be our teacher. Help us, Father, to have listening ears to hear what you have for us in the word. And, and Lord, I pray for your enablement to preach with clarity this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, knowing where you have come from helps you to know where you are going. Knowing where you're from helps you to know where you're going and the book of genesis serves that function for us with regard to the scriptures the book of genesis lays the essential foundation that is necessary to rightly understand the remaining books of the old and new testament and as you go through the book of genesis you know that it it breaks down into two great parts chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50 chapters 1 through 11 providing essential foundation material in abbreviated form to be sure but essential foundational material that that really sets up all that comes after that it's in chapters 1 through 11 that god reveals to us the forming and filling of the creation It is there in chapters 1 through 11 that we find the origination and development of human society. It is in chapters 1 through 11 where we find the the introduction of sin into God's good creation and the resultant consequences that remain with us to this very day. It is in chapters 1 through 11 where we encounter the promise of a deliverer who will someday rescue us and God's creation from the terrible effects of Adam's sin. And beloved, because marriage is found there in those early chapters, in chapter 2 originated by God on the sixth day of creation, it is what is known as a creation ordinance. A creation ordinance. In other words, that it is binding upon all of humanity from that point forward to the end of the age. But what started out so well in Genesis chapter 2 soon was bent and twisted, wasn't it, by Adam's sin. After the fall, men and women still got married and still do get married. But what was designed by God to be that highest place of human satisfaction outside of he himself, but at the human level, that that point of greatest human satisfaction instead has become a battleground between the sexes and a source of much pain and grief through the millennium. Open up your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, we are continuing in our series, beginning in verse 22, biblical authority and submission, the twin pillars of a godly marriage, looking at the role of a wife, looking at the role of a wife in verses 22 through 24, and this morning considering verse 33. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus is is an amazing letter and and it's been such a fun study together in this letter because it is here in this letter that, that Paul himself explores the mystery of the gospel of God's redeeming grace whereby the ascended Christ reconciles the children of God back to their father and overturns the effect of Adam's sin and its consequences. Beloved, because Christ is Lord of all, there is no area that falls outside of his purview. And that includes marriage. That includes marriage. If if we are to are to live in the marriage relationship the way God intends for us to do, the way God has originally designed it, then we must bring it under the Lordship of Christ. And that requires us to live very much counterculturally. Very much counterculturally. Here in this fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church, he exhorts the believers to, to be filled by the Spirit. In other words, to, to to voluntarily give themselves to the Spirit of God through the Word of God that they might be transformed into the image of Christ. And that transforming power includes marriage. Marriage cannot be all that God has intended it to be apart from the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. It is an impossibility. What Adam forfeited, in Christ we recover. And that's true of marriage. That's true of marriage. Not perfectly in this life, to be sure, but real, substantially, truly we can recover that which Adam has lost. Paul begins his address of marriage here dealing with the wives, and that's what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And as we've looked at verses 22, 23, 24, and this morning verse 33, we've said that we find here seven aspects, seven aspects of a wife's submission that explain that justify and that exalt this godly characteristic of Christian wives. Seven aspects of godly submission. Briefly, we looked a couple of weeks ago at the first, and that is that a wife's submission is voluntary, right? Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And we noted there that as his equal... A wife's submission to her husband is a voluntary act. It is not the response of an inferior, but the voluntary decision of a peer. The voluntary decision of a peer. Secondly, we noted that a wife's submission is specific, right? Wives, be subject to your own husband. To your own husband. Paul does not command women to be submissive to all men everywhere, but to one man specifically, and that is to her head, to her husband. We spent time talking about that, and, and as I said then, and I continue to remind you, those of you that are yet to be married, ladies, choose wisely. Choose wisely who will be your head. Third, we noted that a wife's submission is devotional, that it is devotional. Verse 22 again, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, as to the Lord. We learn that a wife's submission to her husband is not based upon his inherent superiority in any way, shape, or form, but is in recognition of God's establishment of certain roles for marriage, certain roles for the man and certain roles for for the woman in the marriage. And by submitting to your husband, ladies, you are fundamentally submitting to Christ, the creator of marriage, who has established the marital roles. So as you submit to your husband, you are submitting to Christ as to the Lord. And that is an act of worship. It is devotional. It is devotional. Fourth, and last week, We noted that a wife's submission is comprehensive. Comprehensive. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. In everything. A statement, a comprehensive statement. In everything. In other words, in all matters relating to the marriage relationship. In all matters that touch the marriage relationship. In everything, a wife is to be in submission to her husband. Now, as we've said, marriage is God's design, God's creation. And when God originated marriage back there in Genesis chapter 2, he originated it as a partnership. It's a partnership, but in that partnership, the man is called to a vocation. Adam was created first. God placed him in the garden. God gave him the command to cultivate the garden and to, and to um, care for, as a steward, God's creation. It is a partnership. And the woman is then called to the man to help him in that partnership. Verse 18, chapter 2 of Genesis God says, I will make a helper corresponding to him. I will make a helper corresponding to him. I will make him a helper in the pursuit of the vocation to which I have created him. I have called him. So a man is called to a vocation. A woman is called to a man to help him. So in that partnership, wisdom dictates that that decisions are made jointly. Wisdom dictates that the decisions of the partnership are made jointly. In other words, that a man who does not solicit the advice of his wife is a fool. Is a fool. The decisions are designed to be made jointly. But if there comes the place where the two partners are unable to come to a common understanding, a common decision then the husband bears the responsibility to make that final decision. And the wife is to submit joyfully to the decision which he has made. Wives, to be submissive to your husbands in everything. A wife's submission is comprehensive. That's all review. Now the new material. A wife's submission is respectful a wife's submission is respectful verse 33 and <clears throat> Paul here says nevertheless each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband this is a summary statement in verse 33 it's the summary statement by which Paul closes out his entire teaching here on authority and submission in the marriage relationship. In this summary statement, Paul particularizes what he has been saying all along in his instructions to a husband and wife, and he does so. Uh, and the, the clue that he is doing so is that he changes from a plural form to a singular form. Notice it here in verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, and the wife is see to it that she respects her husband. Now, previously he's been talking about husbands, he's been talking about wives, he's been using plural terminology here. He individualizes it, he particularizes it, and he does so, I think, to drive home the point. To drive home the point. And the point is, that irrespective of your partner's adherence to their duty and responsibility, you must fulfill yours. You must fulfill yours. In other words, a wife's submission is not subject to her husband's love, and a husband's love is not subject to his wife's submission. We each have our own responsibility. Let each one fulfill that duty, whether your partner is fulfilling theirs or not. Now, why? Why does Paul conclude his teaching here with regard to the wives with an instruction on respect? Why does he use this as a way to to pull it all together, to summarize it? Why does Paul say to the wife that she has to respect her husband? Isn't submission enough? Why why didn't he just say that each wife must submit to her husband? Why does he include respect? The issue here, I believe, the issue at stake, is attitude. Attitude. Paul is after attitude. He's after the heart of the matter. Not just external compliance, but he's after the heart of the matter. And isn't that the gospel, really? I mean, it's it's ultimately uh, about the heart. It's about a transformation of the heart, which then reveals itself in behavior. It is not behavior modification. It is the transformation of a life that occurs when one begins to think God's thoughts after him and be drawn along in that direction. So, a spirit-filled wife, right? Because that's the general umbrella over this from uh, verse 18. A spirit-filled wife, uh, not only does she submit to her husband, but she does so with an attitude of respect. Okay, A spirit-filled wife, not only does she submit, but she does so with an attitude of respect. Of respect. Now disrespect can take on many, many forms. And uh, it, uh, one can be externally compliant and internally defiant, right? You know the, the saying about the child, right? I'm sitting down on the outside, but inside I'm still standing up. So that's a true statement. But I just want to narrow in on on two particular areas briefly this morning and to talk here about respect and submission. And uh, ladies, I want to talk to you about your face and your tongue. Okay? I want to address your face and your tongue. So here we go disrespectful looks, disrespectful looks. One way that you can disrespect your husband is by how you look at him when he says something you don't agree with or don't like. How you look. For example, rolling the eyes. Rolling the eyes. Or maybe a a certain set to the jaw, that certain look. And every marriage knows the look. Every husband knows the wife's look. Every wife knows, conversely, when the husband has that look, when he is feeling uh, threatened, right? When his pride is is being offended. So there is the rolling of the eyes, you know, it's the, here he goes again, kind of look. And there's a certain set to the jaw, a certain look to the face, a certain flip of the head. All of these kinds of mannerisms are disrespectful. They are disrespectful. <clears throat> some are subtle, some are not so subtle. But they communicate, and they communicate without words, that you are seriously displeased in this moment. You are seriously displeased. And you do not respect your husband's authority in this moment. You don't. You don't have to say a word. You have said everything with your face. And by the way, your children are watching you. Okay, Your children are watching you. And what they are learning is that a dad's authority has certain limits, which is mom's displeasure. And when dad's authority bumps against mom's displeasure, then she neglects it, and so why should we respect it either? So this is a serious deal. This is a very serious deal, okay? So the disrespectful look. Number two, the disrespectful words. All right, so we said it's the face and the tongue. It is the disrespectful words. Disrespectful words can be said in the heat of a disagreement, and that's sin. And that is sin, and it needs to be repented of. But that's not what I'm most concerned with. Nor do I think it's probably the biggest problem. I think most disrespect, and and I, you know, if I'm wrong on this, ladies, you know, flood up after the service here and tell me I'm wrong. But I don't think I'm wrong here. I suspect that that the most disrespect, in terms of words, happens when wives get together without their husbands. That's when I think it probably is most manifest. It's when they get together and they talk about marriage. And they talk about marriage in general, and they talk about their marriage in particular. This is when the complaining happens. This is when the criticizing happens. This is when the husband becomes the butt of a joke happens. This is when attitudes and, and, and words are said that, that demean your husband's leadership or you confess his faults for him. And these are all disrespectful. They are all disrespectful. They all display a profound lack of respect for him who is your head. The Proverbs say in Proverbs 14 and verse 1 that a wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands, and I might add, with her own tongue. With her own tongue. So, disrespectful looks, disrespectful words. Okay, ladies, listen to me now. Your husband is a fallen man. That's not a newsflash to you, right? Pretty much know that. Your husband is a fallen man and thus has many, many faults. He has many, many faults. But he is your husband. But he is your husband. And thus he is your head. Verse 23 again. For the husband is the head of the wife that is a statement of reality he is a flawed specimen but he is your head and he's your head by virtue of the fact that you married him you married him and you became what we will explore later as the one flesh you became the one flesh So even though your husband acts less than respectable at times, you need to remember this, that ultimately your respect for him is based upon the fact that God has made him your head. Okay? So in the final analysis, your respect for your husband, wives, is position-based, position-based, rather than individually attained or lost. You get that? You are to respect him because he is your husband, not because of how respectable or, or less, you know, disrespectful, if there is such a word, he is. Now, it's obviously easier to respect someone who is respectable. And so, gentlemen, let's how about we give our wives a little help, huh? How about we give our wives a little help and become more respectable? Stop acting so selfishly, so childishly, so, so self-absorbed. Oh, I'm getting fired up. <laughs> Man, I got a lot I want to say. A lot I want to say. But your wives, okay, I'm, I'm still in the ladies, so, so ladies, you respect him because of who he, who he is as your husband, not who he is as an individual, and that's huge. That is huge. And that takes us to the sixth. The sixth aspect. The sixth aspect. A wife's submission is difficult. Okay? A wife's submission is difficult. This is not an easy task that you have been called for, two ladies. Not at all. And we've had some strong words here over these last couple of weeks, haven't we? We've spent a fair amount of time talking about comprehensive, what does that mean, and even just now about respect and so forth. So I know that what God is asking of you is very difficult. I know that. I don't know exactly how difficult it is. I can only guess. But I know that even in my own life, when called to submit to other authorities, particularly ones that I don't agree with, that's hard. It's hard. I would say, and I would say it just based on this passage here, that without the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit, ladies, it would be impossible for you to truly respond to your husband in the way that God requires of you. You can't do this on your own. This is not a pull up my bootstraps and try harder affair. Notice that it all, as we've said, falls under the rubric of Verse 18, to be filled by this, be continually filled by the Spirit of God. This is a supernatural thing that you are being called to. The reason that it is impossible without the Spirit and with the Spirit difficult, there are two related reasons, both stemming from the fall. Two related reasons, both stemming from the fall. So, turn back with me to the, to uh, pardon me, Genesis. To the very early chapters here, the foundational chapters. <coughs> pardon me. Chapter two. And Adam and Eve. This is the sixth day. Adam and Eve are created by God, and they're created with certain defined roles and responsibilities. Chapter 2 of Genesis. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. To cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam is created by god uniquely and he is placed by god into god's garden and he is given a task he's given a twofold task actually he's a steward to care for someone else's property and he is to care for the garden itself the creation and he is to be a guardian and steward of the word of the command that is given to him here that's the twofold responsibility he bears he is, to, he is to cultivate the garden, and he is to cultivate the command, if you will. Now, the man is alone, right? Verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone, God's comment. I will make a helper suitable for him or corresponding to him. So, God creates from the side of the man, the woman, brings her to the man, down in verse 22 right the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man brought her to the man and they are wed and they are wed together they are now to to fulfill the creation mandate back in chapter 1 and verse 26 where the Lord God said let us make man in our image According to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves on the earth. So they are given this mandate together. It's a partnership. But it was given first and and preeminently to Adam. Eve is created to come alongside him in the partnership and help him fulfill. This is is instructive, ladies and gentlemen, about marriage. This is very instructive about marriage. What is it really all about? Now, Adam rebelled. Now, wait a minute. I thought it was Eve who took an ate of the apple. It was. Or, excuse me, The fruit. It was. It was Eve who took an eight. But the world wasn't plunged into ruin because Eve took an eight. The world was plunged into ruin because Adam fell from his place of stewardship of the command of God. He fell away from the stewardship of the command of God. That is, that he rebelled against the word of God. It had been told to him, right? Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, verse 2, excuse me, verse 16, chapter 2, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. From the day you eat from it you will surely die. Eve is deceived. deceived. She takes and she eats. She gives to her husband with her. He takes and eats. And when he does, he is ruined. And with him, all of his descendants, all of them. Beloved, it was critical uh, for for Eve to be made from the side of Adam and not specifically from the dust of the ground as Adam was because if she wasn't made from Adam, then the entire race could not come down to one individual, Adam. And if the entire race cannot come down to one individual, Adam, then the entire race cannot be redeemed through one individual, Christ. So this is huge. This is huge. Paul reflects on this in Romans 5.12. He says, just as sin entered the world through one man, sin came through Adam. It came through Adam. And the consequences of his sin are felt everywhere. From that moment forward... To this very day And nowhere more so than within marriage, than within marriage, that that which was designed as a blessing of God is now bent is twisted by sin. Adam abdicated his leadership role, chapter three, verse 17. Then Adam, to Adam he, that is the Lord God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return Adam abdicated his headship his authority his leadership in this first marriage and by doing so he ruined himself and all who follow after him he experiences the 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 frustrations and and the failures that accompany, gentlemen, the fulfillment of our vocation, don't they? Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. We work hard, and we're constantly fighting the thorns and thistles. But for Eve, and notice here, her consequences. As Adam's consequence relates to his vocation... To his role to, as a protector, provider for his family. Eve's consequences also attached to her role as helpmate and mother. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. By the way, the, this uh, word translated pain here, verse 16, is the same Hebrew word translated toil in verse 17. Okay, So it could be translated toil in both places, or pain in both places. So her role as the helpmate and as the mother now experiences the consequence of sin as well, There is pain, there is turmoil that is brought into the core roles of what it means to be a wife. Specifically here now, I want to focus in on uh, where he says, your desire will be for your husband, verse 16, and he will rule over you. All right. God says Eve will experience desire for her husband. Desire for her husband. Now interestingly, in chapter 4 and verse 7, where we are introduced to the first offspring of Adam and Eve, right? It doesn't take long for the consequence of sin to begin to show itself. We have Cain who has brought uh, the wrong sacrifice, and he is angry about God's response to him, that God has no regard for his sacrifice. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, and you must, but you must master it. Okay, that's the same word, desire. For, For Cain, God is warning him that sin desires to rule over him, to control him. And he must master it. He must push back against it. He, mu- he must counteract its, you know, it's being personalized here, but, but, but sin's attempt to, to rule him. Sin is seeking to rule over him. So, with that understanding here in this very close context, right, chapters 3 and chapter 4, when we go back to chapter 3, I think we can unlock what God is saying here to Eve. And I believe what God is saying here to Eve in verse 16, your, your desire shall be for your husband, is that He is saying to Eve that one of the consequences uh, of you slipping out from under your husband's authority, right? by taking and eating, right, and giving to him and so forth, in in this incident here with the fruit, one of the the consequences of that is that you will now be unable to enjoy the, the fullness of the marriage relationship, but it will become plagued by your desire to rule over your husband. Your desire will be for your husband. In other words, your desire will be to rule over him. And he will rule over you. Okay, so she will find this—her this, toil, her pain—in that uh, this relationship that was designed for her protection, for her provision, and so forth, is now something she she chafes under, something she pushes back, something where she wants to assert her authority, and her husband will rule over her. This is still part of the consequence, and so. What I understand this to be saying here is that he will rule over her, but no longer as a servant, but now as a despot. Right? When God confronts Adam, right, and he says, what have you done? Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? And he says, what does he say? He said, it was the woman that you gave me. Right? She gave it to me and I ate. In that moment Adam completes the abdication. In other words, he rather than sacrifice himself for her, he throws her under the proverbial bus. Blaming God and her for his sin. He will rule over her. He will continue to rule over her, but he will no longer rule over her like a servant. Okay, this is instructive. Paul picks this up in Ephesians 5, the transformed life, and he says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loves the church, as a servant, as one who protects and provides. We don't have to look very far at all to see the transformation of the relationship, right? Here in chapter four, after the fall, seven generations from Adam, we're we're introduced to Lamech, who's who's of the line of Cain, right? And with it, polygamy. And with it, polygamy in this very violent man. Beloved, I am... Persuaded to the depth of my being that the inherent clamoring that occurs in every marriage relationship of the wife seeking at time to exercise the authority role in the the relationship and the husband's fleshly pushback against that is the source of great marital conflict. And it's rooted here in the fall. It is rooted here. In the fall now that could be very grim and discouraging couldn't it but there's good news and the good news is that Christ the second Adam has come right and where Adam failed Christ succeeded and all who are joined to Christ by faith share in his success And so that which was lost in the fall is recovered in Christ Christian marriages can begin to reflect the beauty of what once existed in the beginning of time. The second the second cause of, of this marital distress is poor headship. OK? The first one is, I don't know if I said it or not, is role inversion. The first is role inversion. In other words, a, a swapping of roles or an attempt to swap roles. The second one is poor headship. This is the, the other reason why submission is so difficult. And the reason why submission is so difficult is because there are so many poor husbands. So Many poor husbands. Husbands that either do not understand what their roles and responsibilities are, what it means to be a head, or understand and don't care. And don't care. Poor headship. Poor headship. What if a wife, here's a question, what if a wife is married to an unspiritual man? Or a louse? What if a Christian wife is married to an unspiritual man or a louse? Unfortunately, it happens. What would the world say? What advice, ladies, would the world give? Divorce the bum, right? Divorce the bum and go find somebody better. Or maybe even you don't need a husband at all. You can just go it alone. You don't really need him. Husbands are optional. Baggage. They charge extra. At the airport for them. But what would the scripture say? What would the word of God say to a Christian wife who's married to an unspiritual man or married to a louse? Well, we don't have to speculate because we can go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and find out. 1 Peter chapter 3, we can go here and find out. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as Christ, right? Verse 21 of chapter 2, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example or a tracing of. For you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior." Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. What does the Scripture say to a Christian woman married to an unspiritual man or to a louse? The Scripture says that emulating Christ, she is to entrust herself to God and to live out Her godly character before her husband, praying that God will save him, and that God will save him. In other words, she is called to evangelize him, not by leaving open copies of Reforming Marriage laying around the house with the page open to the husband's responsibility section. Or joining the Christian book club where once a month a book on marriage arrives. Okay? Or leaving the Bible open on the coffee table to the right passage or any of all of those kinds of things. Okay, notice that what Paul calls the, the, the godly wife to here is to attend to herself. Right? The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. He says, he says. Ladies, walk in the Spirit here yourselves. Do what you can do and trust God for the results. You're following the example of your Savior. He left you a tracing of how to respond. Now, women in these circumstances, they need a lot of encouragement. I can only imagine how discouraging it would be to be day in and day out Loving Christ and being unequally yoked. Being one flesh with someone who does not love Christ. Who could not care about Christ. Whose life is going in a different direction from Christ. I just can't imagine the depth of the pain and the sorrow that would accompany that situation. But it happens in the first century. It happens today. So a wife, if if you find yourself in this position or you know someone who's in this position, they need a lot of encouragement. They need a lot of prayer support. People who who understand and and will pray. Sometimes they need advice. Sometimes they need advice. And sometimes they need practical, tangible support from the church body at large to, to help them through. Well, how does a woman know whether 1 Peter 3 is in play for her in her marriage relationship? How do you know? Whose decision is it that 1 Peter 3 is in play? Well, if your husband obviously repudiates Christ, then that becomes rather apparent, right? But what if your husband claims to be a believer, but he doesn't act like one? What if your husband claims to be a believer, but he's not acting like a believer? Then what? What? This is where the the church elders are are vital. This is where the the, the elders of the church can can come alongside and, and aid you in making that determination. And that's exactly what Matthew 18 ultimately leads to. And and again, I can only imagine it would be difficult to to come and and to reveal the depth of some of the difficulties you might be having in your marriage. But the elders are there to pray for you, to support you, to advise you. And ultimately, if necessary, to help you in making that determination whether you are married to an unbeliever or not. Because knowing that affects how you respond. How you respond. These difficulties, beloved, are are just, they're hard. And without the gospel, we would have no hope. But we do have the gospel, we do know Christ, and we know that God is at work, we just don't see it all the time. That takes us to the seventh and, and final aspect. Seventh and final aspect. a wife's submission is beautiful. A wife's submission is beautiful. Difficult, yes, but it's beautiful. (coughs) Pardon me, Wayne Grudem, in his excellent book called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, he writes the following. It's, I hate doing this, but he says it so well. But let me just kind of read to you a a little bit of an extended quote from him here. He says, When did the idea of headship and submission begin? The idea of headship and submission never began. It never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships... Authority is not based upon gifts or ability. It is just there. Authority belongs to the Father not because he is wiser or because he is a more skillful leader, but just because he is the Father. They, that is Father and Son, don't differ in any attributes, but only in how they relate to each other. And that relationship is one of leadership and authority on the one hand and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other. We can learn from this relationship among the members of the Trinity that submission to rightful authority is a noble virtue. It is a privilege. Let that sink in. Ladies, what Paul is calling you to is a privilege. It's a privilege. It is something good and desirable. It is the virtue that the eternal Son of God has demonstrated forever. In other words, you are like Christ when you live in biblical submission to your husband. It is his glory The glory of the Son as he relates to the Father. That's mind-blowing when you start to think about it. It's because of this reality that we can rightfully say this, that submission is not a burden to bear, but a gospel glory to display. And that changes everything. That changes everything. It is not a burden to bear, my sisters. It is a gospel glory to display. You are like Christ when you live with your husband as God has established it to be. As the church is most beautiful and appealing when she submits to Christ, So a wife is most beautiful and appealing when she submits to her own husband. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. May God praise you today as you embrace wholeheartedly by the power of the indwelling spirit this call to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think about these things, I pray that your spirit would bathe our hearts in gospel glory. and for the ladies of this congregation, that they would come to see what Paul requires here of them to be not a burdensome duty like cod liver oil pills, but a gospel delight. To recognize that in their role of submission, they are emulating the Son. And he found it not to be burdensome, but he delighted in doing the Father's will. Lord, may you help our sisters to see it as you see it. To find in the gospel the power, the strength to fight the flesh that cries out at times and says, I will not serve. Help them, O Lord, wash their hearts, the truth. And Father, I pray for for the men of this congregation. I pray, Father, that we would not take this delicate fruit, this beautiful blown glass vase, as it were, of a wife's role, and use it in a common way. That we would not seek to to exert ourselves in some way to to dominate. Our Father, there is a history since the beginning. That when we sin as men, this is how we sin. So let us walk out from here with a greater and deeper appreciation for for this wonderful person that you have given to us as a helpmate joint heirs of the grace of God let us love her and and value her and and serve her as Christ loves values and serves his church may you enable us to turn this world upside down with the living example of the gospel we pray for Jesus sake amen Well, beloved, come next week and we will have our Christmas sermon on the 23rd, so come back for that, okay? And we'll come back to this passage after the first of the year and husbands, it will be your turn to see the glory of Christ, okay? I can't wait, I can't wait, God bless you.